Welcome to this edition of the Hopeful Radio Podcast. Today, the incredible journey of Dennis Fry, who led a life of extreme anxiety and fear after being abused at age seven. As he grew older, Dennis says he was deathly afraid of other people getting angry. He would eventually take 15 medications per day, but it was to no avail. He continued to get worse until the day in 2021, he finally came to a spectacular realization that changed everything. Host Stefan Zakowski now in conversation with Dennis Fry. Um, I have with me today a courageous and thoughtful man who, having endured years of suffering, is in, in his own words, on the cusp of healing. Dennis Fry, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you today, sir. It's a pleasure having you here. I know we've spoken on the phone before uh, our interview today, and I'd like for you to start off by telling me a little bit about your story, sort of at a high level, what you've been in and where you are today, and then we'll go through the process of sort of breaking that apart to allow people to understand how you've gotten to where you are. Absolutely. Um, I guess um, we should start out, uh, you know, I'm 54, um, approximately at the age of seven, I suffered, or I should say, I was um, brought into a gentleman's manipulation and um, was exposed to sexual abuse for for probably about a year. Um, It wasn't, it was all meant from his perspective, the grooming perspective, um, to be a thing of love. Um, He always uh, was very, very uh, preachy, very, very uh, Bible-oriented, but at the same time, as a young child, you, you know what what's right and what's wrong. And, you know, I was able to, or not able to, um, I basically, at that point, I, I was split in half. I disassociated from my feelings, um, from the trauma. And at some point, after about a year, uh, my mother came to me and said, you know, this is what's going on in the neighborhood. Do you know anything about it uh, and such things? Well, I had personally um, been groomed to the point where even admitting it at seven years old was so terrifying that uh, I thought I was going to die. So, so I did not admit at that time that I had been abused. Um, but I did admit that I knew of other kids that had. So in a way, it was a way out of my own fears if I could help someone else. Um, So I, I, I specifically remember the time when my mother came to me in the house. And I, I mean, I can see every moment in my head Um, But it wasn't until I was around 24, 25, that I actually admitted it out loud to to anyone, including my parents. Um, But that one year full of incidents, um, 
after everything went down with, you know, everyone getting in, whoever got in trouble with it because there were other people involved in, in the town, um, that they were, there was nothing that they could do. The police said, you know, there's nothing we can do. We can make them get uh, counseling and, and such. Um, so it was kind of just done and over with. It, you know, you never really, no one around, my parents, you know, my friends, no one ever talked about it. Um, but in my head, I still replayed every single incident, every single day of my entire life. Um, it also instilled, instilled the fear of if someone was mad or someone was upset, then that meant I was a bad person. And that meant that my parents were going to leave. And then eventually I would die. I would just um, die um, because I would have been abandoned. So basically abandonment really plays into my fears that I had. And those moved on throughout, you know, junior high school and high school when you start going to dances and you're, you know, you have a crush on a young lady and maybe you guys go out on a date. Well, for me, having a crush on someone was wonderful. It was wonderful to be able to love someone else because the emotions of loving my parents and my siblings and my relatives was gone. It was shut off. Um, I was unable to feel love for them or from them. And that was a protection. I protected myself from feeling too much because at any moment for me, I was going to die. Someone was going to get angry and I was going to die. And when you feel that way, everyone else's emotions in the world affect you, whether it's your best friend or someone at the grocery store or a couple arguing um, in your neighborhood. Those things are so terrifying that you just shut down. Uh, I mean, I, I had to you know, I had to uh, sit in the window as an adult and just stare out the window to make sure nothing was going to happen. Um, I was so terrified of things like my family being hurt that when it would rain, I would hide and just cry and cry and cry because I was so afraid that the world was going to come crashing down around me. Um, when it came to relationships, again, total fear. If that person I was dating or whatever decided they wanted to go out with their friends, oh my goodness, how come you don't love me? Why, why are you leaving me? You're never going to come back. Um, I'm so afraid. And that obsessiveness with protection of people that I loved literally was paralyzing. Um, and again, that continued on until September of two, 2021. So diagnoses that you've had throughout the course of your life since uh, you were seven. Uh, I know we spoke about, you have, um, uh, not attention deficit. What was the, uh, I, I, bipolar, bipolar, obsessive compulsive, uh, ang uh, generalized anxiety, right. Uh, complex PTSD. Okay. Um, you know, major depressive disorder, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, I, go ahead. 
No, I was going to ask. So all of these um, conditions, I know a number of individuals will feel that these are, um, they're part of themselves. They feel that they were born with these conditions. In your case, would you say that they stem from the beginning incidences when you were seven years old? Do you believe that before that you had nothing, there was nothing there. And then afterwards it evolved. It, It was exacerbated by the fact that you got no closure these people just simply disappeared and nothing happened. You saw nothing. There were no consequences to the negativity of them. And so you were basically left, as you said, you were abandoned from a sense of closure, a sense of denouement, ending to this. And that exacerbated the conditions and made them add on to one another. And in your case, simply compounded over a period of time because nobody was helping you. You sort of were on your own and you didn't realize there was methodology to get you to a better place. Although now, although I know we spoke, you said something happened in, I think it was 2008. Uh, Well, no, in 2000 was when I was actually diagnosed with being bipolar OCD, all those sorts of things. Um, Before that, I had always thought that was just me. That's just who I was. I was the person that was very sensitive. I was the person that was very loving and very outwardly smiling. Like, you know, they say, you know, take care of your friends. They're always smiling because you never know what's going on on the inside. I was that person. I was friends with everyone I went to high school with, at least acquaintances. I knew them all. I liked them all. Same thing with college. But inside, I spent so much time terrified that it kind of came to a head in around the year 2000. And in 2000 um, is when, for me, um, everything started to, I don't want to say fall in place, but that was kind of the beginning of the understanding of who I was. Um, I was going through a divorce. Um, Obviously, for me, or maybe not obviously, it was so horrible. Again, we're going to use the word abandonment. Mm-hmm. It was so abandon, abandoning um, that I, I literally put myself in the hospital. I, I could not understand what in the world was going on. I could not understand why the person that... I, I, I clung to from the time I was 19 until the time I was in my 30s was all of a sudden gone. Um, so it was it was almost a, a second traumatic event. But that traumatic event allowed me to start to get the help that I needed. Um, at that time is when they started on medications and um, you know, I was hospitalized in the, um, the hot, you know, the, the psychiatric hospital for a, a couple of weeks. And then I had about uh, three or four months of um, impartial uh, a day program where you go during the day, but you get to come home because you're stable enough and, right. and things like that. So that was the beginning. Then about 2003, I started to get a little worse. So I went back in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Again, I wasn't 
it was it was starting to we needed to change medicines we needed to do this um i was doing cognitive behavior therapy uh, they were very big on that um from 2003 till about 2018 so almost 15 years um i was in the hospital uh, at least five times maybe six i had spent at least a year and a half plus in the day program, the outpatient uh, day program. I would come home and I would be a little bit better, but then nothing really was working. Um, I would get worse Um, after, and and this is recently within the last year, I mean, I've apologized to my children. My, my children range in age from like 33 down to 13. Um, that I didn't know what I was doing during those time periods. Um, there's things that they tell me, that my wife tells me, my family tells me that I I have no recollection of. Um, very, very depressed. Very, very anxious. Um, but that was here at home. Right. That wasn't on the outside. Um, work was was very prosperous. I, I was doing. I did very well at work. I, mm-hmm. You know, I, I became certified in my job, which only a few thousand people in, in the country are certified in. So I was. I had the capacity to function, but when I got home, it was shutdown time. I, I couldn't do anything. Right. So would you say that the the logical side of your brain that allowed you to perform your functions at work was operational and almost independent of the emotional side of you? And you had segmented the two to say, when I'm emotional, I'm on my own. I'm with with people that I can trust at home where I can let go. But when I'm at work, it's logic. Logic kicks in. I'm just me. I have acquaintances at work, but it's logical acquaintances. I don't have an emotional connection to this. And I operate perfectly fine as a logical being. And the rest of it, like I don't see if I saw a puppy, I'd go, that's a nice puppy, as opposed to, oh, isn't he cute? Because yes. there's absolutely no emotional connection. Would you say that's sort of how you were operating? Yeah, absolutely. But um the emotional connection turned into the greatest acting job I've ever had. (laughs) Um, I've done theater for about the last 13 years or so here uh, in Illinois. I love doing theater. I love, you know, acting and all that kind of stuff. Um, But I feel I had prepared for that my entire life because I could be loving to my patients, to my coworkers, um, to anyone that I met on the street, but was so disassociated from those other feelings that they only came out subconsciously. They came out in anxiety, in worry. Um, If it was gonna have a severe storm on Wednesday, on Monday, I would start watching the television almost 24 seven for at least the period of time until the warning was over or the watch was over because I obsessively would turn the channels, ABC, NBC, CBS, weather channel, local news, everybody continuously, unless I fell asleep for a little while, but I would do it all night, all day, just to make sure nothing was going to happen. 
And I would say probably around 2015, I could do it no more. My job was suffering. Um, my patients that I worked with were suffering. Uh, I was suffering. You know, I would go to work and I've only learned this recently and just sit there like comatose and, you know, not really do anything. And I don't even remember doing that. I was just so shut down that, that, you know, and like I said, through these time periods, I've been in and out of the hospital. You know, I was on 15 different medications at once. Um, a normal dose of, of benzodiazepine, clonopin mm -hmm. is like one pill. Um, I would take seven throughout the day and still function right. and still be, you know, just as happy as a lark, but it was so numbing to me that, you know, they were just piling medicine on top of medicine, on top of medicine, on top of medicine. Uh, my last trip to the hospital, I finally got a doctor that said, you know what? Less is better. Let's start out at the beginning. Um, right now, personally, I am on one, two, basically three medications, uh, very low dosages. Um, after 20 years in the last month, I am off benzodiazepines. I am, uh, I, I went down very, very slowly with the doctor's orders and, you know, we staggered it down because I did not want to have any reaction because 20 years of taking, taking those pills can be a, a tremendous shock to your system if you just stop taking them. Right. So to me, doing things the correct way has always been very important. I, I, I don't drink. Um, I don't go out and, you know, do drugs and, you know, all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, I have coped a lot in my life with medicine, not medicine, with like sugar and food and, you, you know, and all those sorts of things. I, I did smoke for 20 years um, and quit in a week just, well, because my wife said she wanted me to quit before we got married and I quit two months before we got married and I haven't smoked since. And yeah. that was you know, 15, 16 years ago, but, um, I tend to lose my track of thought every once in a while. So I apologize. Oh, not a problem. We were talking <laughs> about the, the medications that you've slowly oh, weaned yeah. yourself from. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I take a little medication, uh, so that I don't go up and down, uh, right. manic or, or, or depressive. Mm -hmm. Um, I've only had hypomanic episodes. I've never been in a full-blown uh, manic, so I kind of have bipolar too. Um, my obsessive compulsive uh, medicine has worked perfect. Um, the, it gave me some ticks and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, we adjusted the dose. All that stuff is gone. Um, a little bit of mood stabilizer, and that's it. I mean, I used to take stuff for nightmares, um, but it didn't really work. It actually uh, gave me uh, a condition where I, I would, if I got too much of it over time, I would have a, I think they called a vasovagal uh, reaction and pass out. Yes, yeah, vagal so, dilation. Yeah. Yeah. So after it. like three times of passing out, we we decided to stop <laughs> that kind of medication. <laughs> I would say so. Yes. Yeah. Um, so lots and lots of things. I've researched and looked into. Um, I don't consider myself 
someone who knows everything. I, I don't. Um, and, and actually, I, I work a lot on how I feel, how it feels to me right. to do a certain thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so my first inkling that I was going to be okay happened in 2021. Um, and that is when I, after I started doing meditation, I would, you know, meditate for 10 minutes, five minutes, try and, you know, blank my mind out. I tried everything, sleep meditations. I tried guided meditations with certain frequencies, guided meditations with certain binary beats. Um, I have always been going back when I was younger, I was Catholic. I was an altar boy. You know, my grandparents wanted me to be a priest. You know, I'm my, my family is Irish Catholic, you know, like I'm like third generation from, from Ireland uh, and, and being Catholic and Catholic church at that time being seven, it, it saved me. I mean, I was, I was able to put all of my energy in the awe and the respect um, for others uh, and the lessons um, that they that they taught us about caring for others. I, I went to a very caring Catholic church, a very caring Catholic Christian school. Um, so you know, we learned from example. Very small town. You cared for everyone, and that's just the way you were. And my parents were the same way. If you know, if there was someone in need, you cared for them no matter what. Uh, and you know. There's a big joke about Gen X and Gen X parents. You know, I, I'm technically a Gen Xer and how they raise themselves and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, yeah, I might have been able to go outside and do whatever I wanted and play in the woods and all that kind of stuff. But my parents taught me the most important things growing up just by doing. And that was respect, care, and love for others. Um, and that's what I've kind of based my whole healing around, but I'm bringing that back upon myself. Um, Being disconnected from your own self-love is is very traumatic. It's not, because no matter what, you are always going to put someone else first. That doesn't matter if it's your child, if it's your wife, if it's your sister, or just the neighbor down the street, you're always going to put someone else first. and it's not that I don't still help people, mm-hmm. but, I, but I can say, hey, I need, to, I need to take the afternoon to take care of me, whatever that means. Yeah. I go for a walk in the woods. I sit out in the backyard and meditate or listen to music. Um, I go to my room and uh, you know, put on some candles and sit down and meditate. Um, And I mean, I've done meditation sessions that are, you know, two and three hours long, um, eventually, uh, not in the beginning. It's it's hard to quiet your mind when you're always in your mind. Right. You know, um, some folks are always out of their mind. They're always talking. They're always uh, projecting their emotions, their feelings, their ideas on everyone else. But they're not thinking before they're allowing those things to come out. Well, I spent my whole time life thinking and never saying anything. 
except unless it was positive, unless it was to tell you how lovely you were, how, what that shirt looked nice. Oh, it's so wonderful to take care of you. Um, I don't like to be, uh, you know, when you're starting to learn, they talk about ego and stuff like that. And you're, you know, you're always afraid. Oh, is this my ego? Oh, is this my ego? Well, I have learned that loving myself is not my ego. Accepting that others love me is not my ego. So it's not your ego. If someone comes to you and says, you know what, you're a really great person, or you know what, you really look nice today. It's okay to feel love from others. And growing up, I I never did that. You know, I, I was afraid all the time. Yeah. Well, they say, um, sorry, they they say that uh, to be the best at helping others, you have to help yourself first to be the best at loving others. You have to love yourself first. Yeah. Uh, The best way to heal someone else is to heal yourself first, because otherwise you're a broken self healing someone or helping someone. You're not at your best. Correct. Uh, and, and you can't you can't give them what they need if you don't understand it in your own in your own soul, in your own body. Yeah. I mean, and, and I look back and I can I can look back and I can say, okay, I know why every single thing that ever happened to me in my life, I know why that happened. And it happened so that May 4th, Star Wars Day, 2023. I could be sitting here with you and explaining to people that no matter what, no matter what you go through, and believe me, I know I didn't go through the worst thing that anyone has ever gone through, and I will never say that, Mm -hmm. but everyone, trauma is different. Some people, just their parents saying, oh, why did you do that, you dummy, is enough to be traumatic and enough to change their lives. Some people you know, have to be a fireman at 9-11 to even get into a, a trauma response. They have very, very strong inner selves. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone is different, yeah. but it's nice to be able to say, I have no more fear. I have no more anger. I have, I have more emotions than I know what to do with. <laughs> um, I love on a scale that I never thought I could possibly love on. And that's not even with people that I have relationships with. Mm-hmm. That's with people I see at the mall. Uh, you know, the empathy that you get, uh, you know, because everyone basically, I, I think, is born uh, to have empathy, to care about others. Mm-hmm. And, and you're really taught who and what you should care about Mm -hmm. by the people that you're around and the the time period you live in. But it is such a wonderful feeling to say, okay, you made a mistake. Um, I can still love you as a person, even though you made that mistake and you really should love yourself. Um, I had that epiphany with the man who was my abuser. Um, having obsessive compulsive disorder and not in the way where you wash your hands or everything has to be clean, you know, you know, that kind of stuff, but in the way that you just think and think and think and think, and things just go over in your head. Uh, You know, I was able to 
not only figure out where my abuser was 40 years after the, the fact, I, I knew his, where his address was now. I never contacted him. I never tried to say, oh, I hate you, you horrible person. But knowing that I knew exactly where this person was, and if I needed to say, you know what, I forgive you, I would be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So what did I do? As part of therapy, I wrote a letter. Never had a response for two years. After two years, I received an email from the gentleman um, who was my abuser, his daughter, his oldest daughter. Uh, she remembered me. She knew who I was. She was one of the only kids that wasn't abused. So for whatever reason, whether it was her age or whatever, um, all the other kids in the family were abused before the neighborhood kids got involved. Um, and she said, well, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but he passed away of Alzheimer's, uh, you know, about six months ago. And, uh, you know, I've had your letter. I've read it many times. And God told me to contact you. So we had a wonderful talk. And I got to learn things about the person that abused me that I was able to eventually say, you know what, this generational, and I consider it almost a, a stopping of generational trauma, even though we weren't related, I stopped the cycle. I no longer let the cycle of abuse that was passed down from my abuser and who he was abused by and such and such. Mm -hmm. I stopped that cycle. I did not become the person I could have based on the things that happened to me. Right. And I was able to forgive someone. Now, after death, I, I mean, obviously, I, I didn't get to say that, I, you know, I got to forgive someone that did something that completely changed who I was and changed my entire life. But I would not be sitting here in front of you. I would not have the children that I have. I would not have the experiences of being able to connect to between working in retail and college and working at a doctor's office and stuff, thousands and thousands of people that just the simple fact of saying, hey, you know what? I care about you. You are loved by me. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's been one, one thing in your life can start out to be such a horrible thing. But if you let it, it can turn into a miracle. And, and, it, and it is a miracle, I think, that after 40-some years, I was able to let go of the fear. I was able to, I, I no longer have any of those fears. I no longer see all the visuals in my head that I saw my entire life. Right. They're all gone. Can I reproduce them in my brain and tell you about them? Well, yeah, sure. I've told a thousand psychiatrists and psychologists what happened to me. To, you know, anymore, you know, it's like, you know, watching Game of Thrones or something. You, you know, you, it just is. Right. It, you know, there's no real attachment to it. It just is. So I have a couple of questions associated with, with this. Um, Absolutely. 
uh, one of them being at the beginning. So you said that you you did not um, continue the cycle of, as you said, the cycle of abuse. And yet, uh, in my my heart, I feel it sort of did continue, but it only continued to you. you Correct. Didn't, you didn't externalize it. You internalized it for 20, 30 years post-event. Yeah. Um, and because of that, the second question is, have you forgiven yourself? Yes, um, I have. But... I'm, I have a few more things to still work through. I mean, at this present day, I have a psychiatrist that I see for my medications. I have a say, psychologist that I see for talking to, working through things, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, I have, and just in the last couple of years, I've done uh, energy healing with people who do sound healing, um, you know, that live out in Oregon and Washington and, you know, you've done it online because, you know, COVID happened and everything was done online. Right. Um, I've done energy healing now uh, here in my town where we work on clearing the negativity that gets stuck in your body. Right. And that clearing that negativity will put me on, um, a very important step that I want to be on. And that is I want to be able to love myself enough that I take care of my physical body. Mm -hmm. I love myself enough as a person on the inside. Um, I consider myself to be, uh, you know, a 54 year old, seven year old. So <laughs> when I was, when I was seven, I became an adult right. um, with adult worries and adult themes, but there is a part of me that still loves like a seven-year-old child. And most seven-year-old children um, who have not had suffered any trauma and all that kind of stuff really are, are unconditional lovers. They, they, will, they will hug you or they will hug their friend. And, and there's nothing that is they, any filters they have to go through to feel that emotion. They just are. You are born, in my estimation, as pure love. Yeah, you know, I was about to say the purity of, of a child yeah. is is instinctive. And what you're saying is that although you're an adult, there's a part of you that wants to go that is going back and re reliving that purity, that life with purity. Correct. Because you can't live a life in purity, um, in fear, um, in disassociation with your emotions, yeah. in um, blame either yourself or someone else. Um, you can't live, you know, in, in both worlds, adult and, and childhood when it's appropriate, because, you know, you have to do adult things. I mean, I'm a dad, a grandpa, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? There's, there's adult things I have to do, but I can still walk past someone at the grocery store and make them smile and make them laugh, make a joke. Um, you know, any simple little thing like holding the door right. and saying, you know, there you go. Have a great day. Um, that to me is what a pure loving child would do. They would react from, you know, the point of love. So 
that's the part I'm going back to. I'm going back to the part where I want to spend the next 50 years of my life or longer if medical science <laughs> deems it necessary, right. um, saying that I will love everyone. I will love you regardless of whether I've seen you, met you, or you're just driving past me down the street mm -hmm. like I would have as a seven-year-old. Right. And do, you know, do I want to be 13 again and falling down and gangly and have acne? No, of course not. Um, <laughs> so we can skip over those years. But, you know, when you, when you stay young at heart, yeah. no matter how old your body grows, you will just emanate uh, love. You, you, you just can't help it because you're not going to be affected by what did this person say? What yep. did that person say? You know, how come there's this in the world? How come there's that in the world? You know, if there are people in this world that are meant to be fighters and they're, you know, they're for social justice and, and they have the mental capacity to use that to show their love. Mm -hmm. My choice of mental capacity is to walk up to someone male female old young who is crying and say are you okay is there anything i can do to help you Compassion. Uh, yeah so yeah i mean it is just it's just it's amazing to be able to share things that i never thought that I would be able to even intellectualize or express mm -hmm. the feelings from when I was younger. I mean, it is so wonderful to not be completely disassociated. Like I said, again, I think my healing journey won't end until I either meet the Lord at the pearly gates or I become one with source or I meet whomever or whatever I meant to meet after I die, because I believe I will not only uh, continue on as an individual soul, an individual spirit, but my individual soul and spirit will continue on with my children. And being an example for others um, in the world to say, you know what, Dennis, he was, he was all about love. I mean, if, if that is the only thing anyone ever says about me is, you know, that guy really knew how to love people. He really made me feel loved and special. Mm -hmm. Then all of the trauma, all of the healing, it, it's all worth every second that yeah. I've experienced on this planet. Yeah. Um. A question now. I know you spoke briefly about uh, how the your your religion helped you through the trauma. Um, there's two parts to this question. I hope okay. you're okay with me asking. Oh, yeah. is, given what you've been through, and I know that it's probably been the backbone of what you've gone through in the sense that it supported and moved you forward. You still have a relationship with your with your church, correct? Correct. Um, I 
I don't go to, I'm, I'm not a member of the Catholic Church. Okay. Um, will I still go to the cathedral downtown and go to mass every so often because of the majesty and the beauty of the architecture and the stained glass and the history behind it? Yes, of course. I, I don't blame religion for anything that it was, even though my abuser was a quote unquote born again, middle 70s born again Christian um, who quoted the Bible, who played Santa Claus for us, who was really big on um, right and wrong in his outward uh, persona. Um, I I never let that affect me. Or how about this? It's not that I didn't let let it affect me. It never did. Um, I went, I, I was in Catholic school. Uh, like I said, I was an altar boy. The one thing that it did is it made me, it made my kick in of the obsessive compulsive where I like to collect. Um, I have spent years being a collector and my first set of collection when I was seven, and I can see it in my head now, was tiny bottles of like holy water, cards that have, um, pictures of Jesus and Mary and the apostles and all the saints and little writings on the back and the missalette from, from church, you know, after we were done with that period of time and you had a little missalette that they printed, I would take those home and I would have a stack of them, you know, with my Bible and with a little Bible and, and with, you know, candles, I wasn't allowed to light them, but I was allowed to have them Uh, and pictures and everything that was loving about the Catholic Church at the age of seven, I was attracted to, I was drawn to, I was drawn to the mystery. To me, Jesus was in that little gold tabernacle on the back of the altar, and that's where Jesus and God was. I mean, and at seven, that's what I believed. Now, at 54, I know that Jesus and God and is everywhere. It's, it's inside me. I, 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 in, I like the uh, Christ consciousness uh, aspect. Um, I, I still pray to, you know, the Virgin Mary and Jesus. I, I've done rosaries, you know, for years. Mm-hmm. Um, religion has always been there whenever I was at my worst times. Right. Um, whether that was, again, at 7, 15, 21, you know, even back when I was first hospitalized and everything, you know, I would go to the novenas at the church because at the church or at the hospital, which was a Catholic hospital run by the nuns and stuff like that, they would have that. I mean, and I would go and I was so devout about my prayer that it didn't really matter that I was in a Catholic um, setting. I I could have been in a Presbyterian setting or a Methodist setting or a Lutheran setting. It didn't matter. It was the connection of the words. It was the connection of the sounds like the music or singing and things like that. It was the connection to all the things that we are naturally drawn to. I, I wasn't connected to the words that people were saying to me. I didn't feel anything from the priest or, or the preacher or the pastor standing up there and giving their eulogy or, you know, whatever it's called, uh, giving their talk. Um, 
those types of things I, I didn't connect with because I've always felt I've had a, um, the ability to know without knowing. And what I mean by that is, is I've always been able to understand the principle of love and treating others like you want to be treated that I didn't need to listen to 15 stories telling me about that and explaining it to me. I just have always known that. And I think that's been something that's been very helpful. So, I mean, even to this day, I go to a uh, United Methodist Church uh, with my wife and daughter. Um, we were married in the Pres- er, in the Methodist Church. Um, the Methodist Church that we belong to now has just recently, within the last couple of weeks, became a um, one of the Methodist affiliated churches that believe in inclusion for all. So um, they are not broken away from the Methodist Church, but they have adopted the you can be anyone you want and still come to our church and we will still love you and Jesus will still love you. And, you know, all those sorts of things, we, we will be here for you no matter what, you know, black, white, yellow, gay, straight, it it doesn't matter. Um, So that distinction has just really been an evolution for me because it's what I've always believed. So when you say growing up, well, I go, I'm Catholic. Well, how can you be Catholic when they believe all these things? And I'm like, well, believing in something and knowing that something is right are two different things because you can be taught to believe something. We see it in the media every single day. You are taught what to believe and what not to believe, and you don't know what's true. I have always approached unknowingly religion, as in I know that just because someone wrote down a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago, um, their fifth interpretation of what Jesus said, and then put order to it, doesn't necessarily make it word for word true. Now, there are metaphors, there's parables, and all that kind of stuff. Was Peter the Pope, the first Pope, a very important thing? Absolutely. Um, But after that is all the craziness that Catholicism did over the centuries to the rest of the world necessary? Hmm. No, I, I don't think so, but it happened. There's nothing I can do about it. Right. Um, I just know who I am, and I am not going to be uh, influenced by others who do not have pure intentions. If you do not have pure intentions, then I'm sorry, you're wrong, because it's not, I, I'm not put here, and I don't believe anyone else is put here to hate anyone. Right. I, I can't, I, I refuse and always have to hate anyone. And, I mean, and that goes all the way back to the person that changed my life. Right. Every other person since then. Um, I actually feel bad for people when they get in trouble, for when they do something wrong, right. uh, for when, you know, they're suffering, they don't understand why they're suffering, and society misinterprets that suffering as negativity 
or uh, that they need to be put away, put in jail, shot, killed. I, I, I mean, you know yep. what I mean? Yep. There's just, there's no room for negativity in my life. And, and that's something I will always preach to everyone. There, there's no room. So a question that comes from, I, I, I know I'm going back to. You the can go back to wherever you okay. want to go. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> would you, would you say that, I know we, we talked about the fact that you were afraid in the beginning when you were seven and post seven years old, that you had a fear of losing abandonment, of losing love and the church and God in not in the institution, not in the building, but the concept that the idea that God is universal and his love is universal and his love is infinite and always doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing, it's always there. Is, could that possibly be one of the reasons why it's been strong in your life? Because it's that one, that one bit of love that never left and you never had a fear that it was going to leave because yes. it was ingrained in you that it doesn't, it's there. It's always there, no matter what you do. Correct. And so that possibly was that one tiny thread that you could hang on to that kept you from completely losing everything in your head to some dark place because I do have one tiny bit of love that I can hang on to. And then that becomes your guiding light to the concept that you want to now be that love. You want to be that universal all the time. I don't care what you've done or where you are or what's going on in your life. Love is the answer. Compassion is the answer because yeah, without yeah. those things, you know, where are you? And yeah, you absolutely, absolutely. 100%. Um, and, and that, it is such a strong statement to be able to hold on to that love um, and not let that love discriminate. That love wasn't my love. That love was everyone's love. That love was the, the child uh, who is crying uh, in their room because, you know, somebody hit them or that, that love is, the person who makes the mistake of harming someone else and not because they aren't loved themselves, but because they're lost without that love. Mm -hmm. You know, I was never lost without that love, that, that, that love of the all God, Everyone had it. The you know American Indian traditions had it. The Australian Aborigines had it. The Egyptians had it. The Jewish people had it. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Uh, it, it is so universal to everything that we do in this world that if we could just get past others' interpretations and others pressure on what to think and how to think and really hold on to that love, no matter what, mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the world would be a much better place. But if I am here to say, you know what, John, you know what, Sally, uh, you know what, Rich, if, if I can show you unconditional, uncompromised love, no matter what, you can do the same for yourself. If, if 
if one person can do it, everyone can. And I'm not saying that it's not hard. It's incredibly hard. Like right now for me, having that um, kind of uh, instinct to if I'm getting a little upset or, you know, whatever. It's not that I don't feel anger. I feel anger about lots of things. It, am I capable of, capable of being so mean and angry and hateful towards things in this world? Absolutely. But I know that I will never allow myself to cross that line. And I'm actually also getting to the point where I don't feel those angry feelings anymore. Because I'm able to understand why they're there, uh, what they were used for, um, but they were all kind of subconscious. It, it, it was just me. Like I said, until you know, just recently, it was always just me. I didn't know that everyone didn't want to destroy the world because people won't stop at stop signs right. or throw <laughs> trash out of their cars. Right. Uh, you know, or or being uh, verbally or physically abusive to their child, you know, injustice creates a great amount of, yeah. you know, different feelings, but it's how you interpret them. It's how you use them. So if you can use them for positive and to say, yes, I'm very, very angry. Yes. This has to change. What is my role in the change? And I feel my role in the change has been my ability to hold on to that love, as you said, no matter what. Yeah. No matter what trauma I have gone through, mentally or physically, in my 54 years, um, that will never go away. Right. Um, so hopefully that answers what you were, you know, what you were getting at, because I do have a, a tendency to ramble. You know, I, I could do, it's funny. I, I feel like I could do like a, you know, an eight hour stage program and just sit there and talk constantly. Um, but that comes from never being able to talk before. Mm -hmm. No, actually, I wouldn't say it's an eight hour stage. I could see a two hour stage performance in, as you say, my, my wonder skill is to immediately go off on a tangent at 150 million miles an hour and develop <laughs> things ideation wise yeah uh, what you just said i can see a stage performance being done because you're an actor where you talk through sessions you you go through periods in your life as yourself but at different stages you know so you're the 54 year old today but in 15 minutes, you're suddenly the seven-year-old. You're the right. five-year-old before anything happened and how you were pure and innocent and nothing was going on. And then the change states and the writing would drag people through the emotional roller coaster and bring them back in the end to the sense of you are moving towards that pure love, right? That we had talked about before. The seven-year-old in you wants to yeah. come back out and express that emotional state that has none of that that adaptation as you said you know like right. religions have adaptations they have people take words and interpret them the interpretations are those adaptations and get rid of that and just have the emotional purity of the expression of this is us we're all this all of us even though we're different are all the same in the sense that we are human beings we all want to live we all want to be happy and emotionally secure but the big universal piece right across the board is we all want love we want compassion we want love and 
If you do it at a childhood level, at a seven-year-old level, at a five-year-old's level, where there is nothing that's been interpreted yet. There's nothing. It's just, give me a hug. You know, that's what yeah. I want today. I want a hug today. And that's it. They just throw their arms around and they'll give you a hug and they're laughing at the same time. It's that's the kind of thing that you're going for. That's what if I understand yes. you correctly, you, you're, you're interpreting it absolutely correct. And and I want to add to that. It also needs to be it needs to be love without judgment. And what I mean by that is, is I need to be able to say to someone. Old, young, male, female, doesn't matter. Hey, you know what? You're doing great. You know, I, I really love you. There's no ulterior motive. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I guess I'm trying to say. I I think or I feel that ulterior motives or people thinking that everyone has an ulterior motive needs to go away. Because <laughs> I don't. I can tell you that if I came up to someone and said, you know what, your hair looks really pretty, or wow, that those colors look really great. Or, you know what, man, you're doing great. You are a great dad. Yeah. You're a great grandpa. You know what? You're a great brother. Do, you know, um, getting someone to understand that the act of love and the act of compassion has nothing, is not attached to any ulterior motives yep. because we have been conditioned because the predators in our world are so good at making you think one way and then turn around and show you another thing. And but and, I, I don't want to discount that, but I mean, <laughs> even even our our even the good times, even you know, when your parents were being at, at best the most loving, but you've been a royal pain in the butt because you were squalling or you're throwing your toes toys around, they'll say, I'll give you a cookie. If you're really good and you're immediately feeling like, oh, they love me and they give me a cookie. There's an ulterior motive that you've built in your head. Yes. If I'm good, I get a reward. If I yes. say something, there's something that follows this. So when someone says something nice to you, your immediate response is, um, what are you giving me? Or what do I have to give you for that? Correct. Right? And and that comes from that core, even a year old, right? That that you you I'm gonna use paraphrase something from my history. What are you crying about? If you don't stop crying, I'll give you something to cry, cry about. about. Now oh, stop yeah. crying, you know, and you get that, that those parallels. And in life, as you're an adult, you're going, I'm upset. But if I stay upset, something's going to happen. And if I stop being upset, something good is going to happen. And yeah. if somebody says something to me bad, there's a reaction to that. There's a there's something happening. And if somebody says something good, there's something happening here. And I mean, to as human beings, really, and I agree with you a thousand percent, we need to get rid of that. We need, as an entire species, to get rid of this concept of quid pro quo, because there isn't. We should start like children at innocence and simply say, you look good today. I love the way your hair flows. I like the way the glasses, I like the reflection in your glasses. You yeah. know, your cologne comes across the computer screen like it's fabulous. <laughs> I really love that. Without it coming across in your head going, where is he going with this? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> or expecting something negative to come afterwards. Yep, yep, yep. You know, exactly. I mean, and you don't have to tell everybody all the time that they're doing something right. If they're doing something wrong, they need to be told without judgment. Mm -hmm. They need to be told in a loving way. You know what? What you're doing really isn't the right thing to do, and this is why.
yeah. not, you know, you arrogant SOB, how dare you do that? Uh, you're such a jerk. You're such a B word. You, you, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and all that kind of stuff in any relationship that is so important. And it's also important in your relationship with yourself, you know, telling yourself, uh, you know, I, I've been kind of a jerk today to my wife. Maybe I wasn't the, you know, maybe I was, you know, being too grumpy. I was being too mean, but man, she drives me nuts sometimes. Oh, this and this and that. Well, saying I understand why I'm feeling this way, or I'm at least willing to think about why am I feeling this way and not saying it's your fault. I feel this way. It's your fault that I was angry. It's your fault um, that I went and shot up that school. It's your fault. Well, no, it's not. Because if it was somebody else's fault, then every single one of us would have done horrific things in our lives. Because again, going back to how society is, how society portrays things. You know, I, I love movies. I love music. I love everything when it, when it comes to the arts and stuff like that. But if you can't differentiate between art and reality or between rhetoric and reality, it is going to affect you to the point where you're going to do something dumb uh, maybe really bad because someone else put that into your brain. Yeah. It, you know what I mean? So being able to recognize that, no, it's not someone else's fault. It's my perception. It's how I'm perceiving and, and how they're acting is their perception of how I am, or, you know, their perception of how I am acting. Yeah. So we have to really take um, control or, I really, I know the word. I just can't, I can't figure out what to say. We, we need to take um, responsibility for how we feel. So to that, to that end, I have two things that I, that I live by. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can never know because nobody that I'm aware of in the world is hundred percent or even 90% psychic. You can never right. know the context of anything that is happening around you. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's speaking to you, you can't know their context and therefore your responses shouldn't be based on what you think they're thinking. It should be only based on what you feel. Correct. And the other piece is, is that the only person who can make you feel anything at any time is you. Correct. Nobody can stress you. Nobody, nothing and nobody external to you can stress you. Nothing and nobody external to you can make you laugh. Nothing, nothing and no one external to you can make you feel anything because it all happens in your head events can trigger things but it's what goes on in your head that makes that funny that makes you sad that but it's you doing it it's all 100 you so when people say oh that stresses me out no you stress you out it's Correct. you responding to the event that is stressing you out when you say i don't like the way that person says this have you taken into consideration the context in which they said it and to the point that we were making earlier about the pure love and about compassion, that's based on, as you said, non-judgment. And the judgment is context. Don't apply your personal context on anyone else. That's where judgment comes from, because you simply take, my context is important, yours is not, this is how I'm, I'm basically... Mm-hmm 
evaluating the things that you do, the things that you say based on my personal context. And that has to be thrown out the window because that's not the way to live life. Unless you are the universal being who has created all, mm-hmm. that's the only way your context is important over somebody else's. Because in it, essence, you are the context. Correct. Right. Because you even speaking of it that way, being the universal all that, that creates everything, um, if, if you take it just one little step further, um, if we think of uh, God in everything, plants, flowers, bugs, trees, us, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, with, with that type of mentality, not only is it the great creator that created everything, but you are part of the great creator. So you have created everything that's in front of you. Um, I worked in ophthalmology for about 16 years. So as a photographer and a medical photographer, I image the back of people's eyes. And they say that the eyes are a window to the soul. Now, if you really look in the back of someone's eyes, you think with your brain, if you've never seen one, Oh, well, these are my eyes, and that's how I see. Well, when you look in the back of somebody's eyes, there ain't nothing there. There's some veins. uh, There's some dark pigmentation. There's a little dark black spot. You know, you have your optic nerve, which brings everything back to your brain. But the wavelength coming into your eye is just interpreted by millions and millions of little cells, and it sends it to your brain. So your interpretation of what is happening around you is created within yourself and based on your experience. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way in my estimation or in my thought that you can go through this world. And if you go through this world, looking at things like, you know, yes, that's horrible. Yes. That was a very tragic thing. And yes, I feel very, very bad and very sad about that. But now I need to, be as helpful as I can to the people who need it, who have suffered this trauma. Just because you see a trauma, you don't have to be traumatized by it specifically, unless it is happening to you. I'm not saying that, oh, I was in a horrific car accident. My entire family was killed. That's not traumatic. No, of course it is. It's horribly traumatic. But for someone from the outside to be able to come in and say, yes, this is horribly traumatic. And yes, it will take time to, to process and to get through. But I promise you that if you love yourself and you interpret what you're going through and heal yourself, the trauma doesn't go away. You, you never will forget but you will forgive that emotion for, for lack of a better term, taking control of you because that emotion at that time takes, it takes control and it will control everything you do. If you're an angry person on the inside and you're that kind of stuff and you're suspicious and, and those sorts of things, and you see someone in the grocery store that you interpret they're bad, you're going to treat them badly. Uh, you, you know, people who abusive husbands, mm-hmm. they're not a, they're not abusing their wife because, uh, because of her, they're abusing their wife because of themselves. Yeah. And when you can understand that when someone does something to you, yes, it is traumatic, 
yes, is it sad? But yes, I can do something about it. I can move past it and I can make my life better and learn how to treat others based on how I was treated. I, I guess that makes sense, I, I hope. It, it definitely does. And to be honest, this is a perfect opportunity to, um, to express my thanks for the conversation because it's a, a high note to end on to allow people to understand that they can move through things. Um, that universal love at an innocence level is probably the best route to start to allow yourself to forgive yourself, to love yourself. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation again, Dennis. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, with, I mean with anything that, that you need to go now, deeper. Yeah. You know, anytime you want, anytime you need me, and I tell everyone this, I will always be there. Now, am I going to be busy picking up a kid or <laughs> grass? Well, yeah, of course. But I, I, I am open to being there for everyone and anyone that needs me, except for, you know, walking down the side of the highway with a sign that says, repent. Repent. <laughs> you know, I, I don't really want to do that. Uh, but if but, I need you to do that, would you do? You do. No, uh, I'm, I'm no, you know, I'm as, a, as as someone who's been on stage for a long time, I've done a lot of crazy stuff on stage. So, mm. um, and when you talked about being an actor, my favorite thing is not the applause. My favorite thing is making people feel. If I could look in their eyes and they're smiling or they're sad or they're happy, I have been able to make them feel. And why that's so important to me is because I have always been afraid of feelings and I am no longer afraid. And I take great joy in making others not be afraid also. So I thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to you. It's been wonderful. And like I said, if you ever need anything, please contact me because I mean, yeah, pretty much I'd do anything that if it didn't hurt somebody, yeah, we'll <laughs> I would never, I would never ever, ever ask anyone to hurt anyone else ever. Well, yeah, um, you know, Yep, I completely understand. No, it's been a pleasure. It's been an honor. Um, I've appreciated the honesty in the conversation, and I'm sure our listeners are going to absolutely and thoroughly enjoy, as well as take some hope and some information that you've given uh, to help themselves move forward as well. I mean, I'm personally, I've been through a number of experiences, and some of the stuff that you say, I've thought about, you know, really, I need to stop being so upset with the person in front of me who's counting change out at the grocery store and simply say, different context and i'm sure that they appreciate me my patience so yeah i even i'm taking away something of value oh uh, thank you from our thank conversation you. so thank you very much no problem i i like i said i enjoyed it thank you very much love to everyone and uh i will say goodbye all right bye-bye dennis Bye. bye this has been another edition of the hopeful radio podcast be sure to follow or subscribe to us on this platform